The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. I bring this up because today's scripture deals with the sense of smell. And you may think, well, that's not that significant. Au contraire. You only have a few senses, and that's one of them, right? The sense of smell is one of them. It may not strike you as significant, but it's actually profound because in a passage like this, we're reminded of something that we could easily overlook, and that's this. Scripture takes the human experience seriously. The Bible takes the human experience seriously. We live in a biblically illiterate time. We live in a time where most people in America have never read the Bible, and in fact, many Christians have never read the Bible on their own. And yet, we all have a general impression of the Bible. We have assumptions that we make about what's in it, but here's the thing. If you've never read it, then we're going to assume that what's in it is what we assume or imagine is in sacred writings, whatever that is for you. And so maybe it's a book that's just rules for living or lists for what the deity approves of and disapproves of or ways to worship in order to obtain an eternal reward. And it's a travesty when our presumption about Scripture reduces it to a manual for good behavior. Because the human experience is about so much more. It's so much more textured and nuanced than rule following and appeasing a distant God. One of my driving, I'm a preacher, and one of my driving convictions as a communicator is that I want to do more than just teach the content of the Bible. What I want to do with God's help, is I want to teach the content of the Bible in a way that helps you cultivate a love for it. Gives you a taste for it, a desire to be in it, because I want you to read it. I want to read it, right? Scripture, and the reason is, is because Scripture is not just a book of rules. It takes the complexity of life seriously. Scripture takes you seriously, It takes you seriously. It speaks of things like work and rest and worship and friendship and love and marriage and sex and betrayal and longing and grief and joy and beauty and what it's like to move through this world as sensory beings. And so, think about this. Today's passage centers on the power of scent. And in doing so, look at what all it touches on. It touches on issues of luxury, commodity, wealth, beauty, concern for the poor, burial, affection, human touch, and a host of other things that remind us that Scripture is not just merely a manual for life. It is about life itself and where to find it. And it takes us seriously. So in this passage that's really about how things smell, that's God saying to us, 
I made you as people where this matters, and it matters significantly. A note about the text itself is uh, there are at least two occasions in Scripture where Jesus is anointed with expensive perfume. At least two places where this happens, maybe more. Um, But it happens here in this passage, and this takes place on the Saturday. So get, get on the timeline with me. This takes place on the Saturday before the triumphal entry, which is Palm Sunday, which is the Sunday that kind of kicks off Passion Week where Jesus is arrested, crucified, died, buried, and rises on Easter morning, right? So this, this one here takes place on that Saturday before Palm Sunday. So the next day, he's going to ride into Jerusalem on the colt. And then the other time, it takes place just four days later on Wednesday, which is the day before the Last Supper. It's the day before Jesus is arrested, And there's a couple of key differences. The passages are similar, but there's a couple of key differences. In John here, they appear to be at Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' house in Bethany. And Mary is the one who's anointing Jesus, and she's anointing his feet. In Mark, they're at the home of a person named Simon the leper, and it's an unidentified woman, and she's anointing Jesus' head. So I'm bringing this up to say this isn't the only place in the Gospels where the same event happens more than once. That's kind of a regular thing in Scripture, Like, for example, uh, Jesus miraculously feeds 5,000 people in Matthew 14, and then in the very next chapter, Matthew 15, he miraculously feeds 4,000 people. In two chapters in the same book, back to back. Jesus overturns the money changers' tables twice. He does it once early in his ministry when no one really knows who he is in John 2, where they're like, who's this guy? And then he does it again at the end of his ministry in Matthew 21, which is actually on the Monday after Palm Sunday, which would be two days after today's text happens. He overturns the money changers' tables, and here now everybody knows who he is, and they're trying to kill him. So he bookends his earthly ministry by going into the temple, overturning the money changers' tables, and saying, this place is mine. Repeated events with differing details and the reason I'm mentioning this, is they don't note an error in the text. What they do is they simply indicate that something happened more than once. And as part of the human experience, it would be weird if that wasn't the case, right? Because we do things more than once. Things happen more than once. But in this case where Jesus is anointed with oil, it's significant that it happens more than once because it happens within four days of each other. And there's something significant about that. It's one of my favorite little details in the gospel, the fact that Jesus was anointed with oil twice in the span of just a few days in the days leading up to his arrest. Because what it means is he's anointed with this oil that is expensive and there's a lot of it and it's thick and it's richly aromatic. And twice in a week, he's given a year's worth of this which means that the scent of that perfume lingers on his body throughout Passion Week. And it's an expensive perfume that only the wealthy, the royalty, can afford. And so he walks in a room, and with him comes the scent of opulence, extravagance, royalty. We'll we'll land talking about that, but I just want you to have that in your mind as we go into this. So let's take a trip around the room real quick and see who's there at this dinner. There's probably a lot of people at this meal that are not mentioned by name uh, because it is a dinner thrown in honor of a guest. 
And so that means that probably there are a lot of people who were invited to this. Um, but let's just look at who's mentioned because this dinner party would have been bananas. I mean, it just would have been a crazy affair when you just think about who is in this place. Because first you have Jesus, you have the second person of the Trinity in the flesh. It's always a big deal when he's there, right? And he's got his disciples with him. And one of the other guests, Jesus is the guest of honor, actually, and one of the other guests reveals to us why he's the guest of honor, and that's because Lazarus is there. Lazarus, only weeks earlier, was dead. He was dead for four days. He was dead, wrapped in grave cloths, put in a tomb, the tomb was sealed, and then days passed. And then Jesus came and said, Lazarus, come forth, and... Lazarus came forth and he said, take the grave clothes off him, unbind him. Now they're having dinner together. So the fact that Jesus and Lazarus are together having dinner together, that's an amazing thing. How big of a deal was it? This miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. In our minds, we can read these Bible stories and think, Jesus went here and he healed a blind guy and he went here and he cast out a demon and he went here and he cleared up some leprosy and Lazarus over here was dead, he raised him and he went around. But no, this, there was a cumulative effect of this ministry that he had and raising Lazarus from the dead was the one that just tipped the scales because there's, there's just no explaining this away. There's no explaining this away. Bethany is a suburb of Jerusalem. And this person is living evidence of the power of Christ. And what happened was people by the score began to put their faith in Jesus because of it. And Lazarus was now this living testimony to the power of Jesus to the extent that the Pharisees had not only hatched a plan to kill Jesus, but they also hatched a plan to kill Lazarus. Can you believe that? It's in the verses immediately following the text we read. If you just read the next three verses past the text we just read, you'll see the plot to kill Lazarus. What's his crime? He's alive. He's not supposed to be because him being alive is focusing on the power of Jesus and detracting from the power of the Pharisees who want Jesus dead. And so it's kind of an amazing thing that they're, that they're there, Right? So you've got Jesus and Lazarus. Then you have miserable Judas. John mentions his name, and as he does, he mentions his betrayal. All the gospel writers do. There's no sympathy in Scripture for Judas. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. And then you have Martha. And Martha's doing what Martha does, right? We, we're, seeing, we're seeing maybe the foundations of the Enneagram here in Scripture, right? <laughs> that... Martha's doing a thing. She has a personality type. She, she serves and she cooks and she prepares and she buzzes around and she's a flurry of activity, right? And she's there doing what she does. She gets a bad rap. Martha gets a bad rap. There was a book came out not too long ago called um, something being Mary in a Martha world or something like where the title kind of presumes don't be a Martha, be a Mary. But, but Martha is using a, a gift and she's using the way that she's wired to serve Jesus, to the point that even though this is a passage that really deals with the startling aroma of Mary's perfume, you know that the scent of Mary's perfume was not the only lovely scent in that room because there was also Martha's cooking. And that was happening. And then you have Mary. And Mary's doing what Mary does, right? She's sitting at the feet of Jesus while 
Martha's buzzing around. She's just there, and she's at the feet of Jesus, and she's caring for him, and she's, and she's, and she's got this, this perfume that she opens. So let's talk about that. Mary of Bethany, Lazarus' sister, she's been saving this perfume. It's worth a full year's wages. So think of it like, think of it like a $50,000 bottle of champagne, if that helps you. She's got a perfume that's worth a year's wages. And the text, the way it's written, says she was saving it for this occasion. Maybe not this exact dinner, but she was saving it for Jesus. Because what the text tells us is they gave a dinner party for Jesus, therefore Mary took her perfume. Because there was this party for Jesus, she goes and gets her perfume. That's what it's for. And she begins to pour the perfume on Jesus' feet. She wipes it with her hair. And it is intimate. There's no other way to describe this. It is intimate. It's human touch. And it's also not hidden. It's startlingly aromatic. Like the room is filling with the scent of this. Mary is not acting on a whim. She is in the process of offering Jesus everything she has. And Judas here is the one to react. In the other passage in Mark, the disciples collectively react, which tells us that they're all thinking what Judas is thinking. And Judas is kind of behaving like, like a man. Uh, he is uh, considering the cash value of the perfume and regretting the waste. Just, he's being a pragmatist, right? He, he looks at the value of the perfume and he's looking at Mary as though she might as well be burning $50,000 in the oven. What is wrong with you? And of course he does what men, women, we all do, is that is we justify our self-righteousness by dressing it up in the auspices of concern for the poor. Right? I'm concerned for the poor. Think of all the people who could have been helped if she had sold this, and then given that money away. What a waste. Jesus has none of it. None of it. I love that in the Gospels we learn that Jesus doesn't really seem to ever care about the monetary value of a thing when it comes to people. As American Christians, that is a hurdle for us to overcome because we, we just, we, we're, we're capitalists, you know? We, we're soaking in it. Uh, and it's the way that we think. It's the way our culture works. But Jesus comes to her aid and he comes to her aid in a way where what he says basically is, he says what she's doing is beautiful. In fact, she's the only one who's thinking rightly about the perfume. She's the only one who gets it. And there's a doctrinal principle that's happening here. And so if you are um, miserly, if you are a sheer pragmatist, if you are a person who um, uh, thinks about the numerical value of something and has that as kind of the benchmark for what a thing is worth, then let scripture challenge you here on this. Because here's a doctrinal principle that's wrapped up in perfume. Okay? The perfume could have been sold for a year's wages. Question, what is perfume for? 
What's it for? Is it merely a commodity that she should hold on to and cash in at the right time? Is this how God expects her to steward this valuable resource? To what degree do you think this of God? To what degree do you think of the things that you possess in this way, their value? And what does that reveal about how our hearts are engaged with the world and engaged with God? Because perfume is meant to be spilled. It's meant to be spilled out. It's meant to be evaporated until it's gone. An expensive perfume, that takes a long time to happen. It lingers. It's powerful. It's meant to be released into the room with a beautiful and startling aroma that makes everybody kind of turn their head and say, what's that? And so that's what happens here. The scent electrifies the senses of everybody there. And Jesus says her use of this perfume right now is beautiful and right. She's using it rightly. Why? Beauty matters. Beauty matters. That's where the sense of smell comes in, right? Our sense of smell is one of the ways we recognize beauty. There's a... a, group of a company, I don't know what you call them, a food truck um, called the Peach Truck. Is that what it's called, the Peach Truck? And it's it's not a guarantee every year that they're going to be awesome. But every once in a while, the Peach Truck comes from Georgia, and they sell these peaches in these paper bags, and you stick your face down in that paper bag, it is the most lovely thing you've ever smelled in your entire life. Entire life, right? It's beautiful. We can be so utilitarian that we only want to know what a thing can be bought or sold or used for. And we have no place for beautiful things unless they serve another purpose. And so sunsets happen and we never look at them. Beautiful music is played and we never listen to it. Wonderful books sit on shelves and we never read them. Bottles of fine wine never get opened. We never go to art museums because we can't really measure what it gets us in the end. It's going to cost me half my day. For what? By the way, there are Van Goghs at the Frist right now, just so you know. I'm not telling you to drink wine and I'm not telling you to spend your afternoon in an art museum, but what I am doing is I'm raising the question about a doctrine of God. Do you believe in a God who is strictly utilitarian? who measures everything between us and him in terms of what it costs us and what it gains him. Is that the God that you worship? Because that's not the God who is. Everything in creation, everything in creation testifies to a creator who delights in beauty for beauty's sake. Human beings, here's the the thing that'll blow your mind. Human beings are the only creatures on the planet who can behold and be moved by beauty. We're the only ones. We're the only ones who stop and see something and say, oh man, that is breathtaking. Which means that's quite a thing to steward, isn't it? That we're the ones. We're the ones who are tuned in. Why? Because we're made in the image of the creator. 
who delights in beauty for beauty's sake. So we're the only creatures on the planet who can behold and be moved by beauty, and so we have to steward that reality well because that's a part of being a human, and Scripture takes the human experience seriously. So many things that are beautiful didn't need to be, and yet they are. God opted to make them that way. Sunsets, flowers, autumn, mountains, birds, people. All beautiful. Why? One reason has to be because beauty pleases God. He likes it. Another reason has to be to arrest us by our senses when we're otherwise just plodding along with our heads down, living within the economy of pragmatism. When I stepped out of my car into that steaming parking lot that smelled like rain on limestone and I was teleported back to Jerusalem, it was a holy moment for me because it teleported me back to a time when I was discovering the world and I was discovering God in ways that I never had before. And all of a sudden, I'm looking back on a life and I'm seeing the faithfulness of the Lord over time and I move to the sense of gratitude and worship while I'm on an errand because of a scent. Triggers it. I didn't ask for it. It just happened. What Mary did was beautiful. And Jesus wanted his disciples to know that it was beautiful and he wanted them to know something else. She is preparing me for my burial. Wait, what? Come again? She's preparing me for my burial. At this point in Jesus' ministry, he knows the score. He knows what's going to happen that week. He knows that Passover is coming. He knows that he is the perfect spotless Passover lamb. He knows that he's about to lay down his life. And he knows that everything that's happening is leading up to that. And he is seeing and placing everything now in his ministry in the context of his pending death. He knows what the following week holds for him. Exactly one week from the day Mary spills her perfume on Jesus, one week from that day, his lifeless body would be laying in a tomb, wrapped in burial cloths, dead in a grave. He knows that's coming. And now here in this intimate setting with friends and recipients of miracles, with all their various quirks and flaws and personality traits and bents, all of that, there's the scent that's filling the room and it's the scent of opulence and extravagance and wealth and royalty and they're all smelling it and this perfume is going on to Jesus and it's a perfume that's gonna stay with him over the course of the next couple of days and then he's going to be anointed again on Wednesday and that's going to stay with him for a couple of days all through Holy Week. Jesus is going to smell like royalty and wealth. Everything Jesus did was not just for those he was with then. It was for us. And so receiving Mary's perfume was for us. How? Well, he wasn't just receiving her gift. He was preparing to lay down his life. And the role of the perfume was in fact beautiful 
And so we're going to land by talking about that. Nard. That's the name of the perfume. Nard. What is it? It's, a, it's an oil-based perfume that's extracted from a flower called spikenard that's grown in the Himalayas of China and also in the northern regions of India and Nepal. In Jesus' day, it carried hygienic value, medicinal value. It was very expensive. It was something that wealthy people, dignitaries, royalty could afford and not many other people could. We don't know how Mary got it, but she had it. And as a perfume, it was intensely aromatic and it was thick in its consistency. It was kind of thick like honey, except for it was oily instead of sticky. What happens when someone takes a pound of that and puts it on the body of a man who doesn't shower every day? Well, he takes it with him. In a big way, he takes it with him. It gets in his pores. It coats his skin. He's a walking diffuser, right? When he scratches his neck, the scent is agitated and released into the air like he's a walking scratch-and-sniff sticker. Jesus was anointed on the Saturday before his triumphal entry the next day. And then again on Wednesday, the day before his arrest, the perfume was on him. It was on him all week. So what if? What if the scent that filled the room in Bethany, the scent of royalty, followed him the next morning as he rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday on the coats and palms of people making way for their king? What if... The scent of royalty lingered, and lingered on him the next day as he overturned the money changers' tables and declared by his actions that that temple belonged to him. What if as Jesus wound through Jerusalem's narrow streets that week, the scent of that perfume lingered mysteriously in the air like a spirit after he had disappeared from sight? What if after being anointed again on Wednesday, it also filled the upper room? And it was there when the first Lord's Supper was given and when the, Jesus washed his disciples' feet and when he dispatched Judas and when he told Peter, Peter would betray him. What if after his arrest, as he was stripped down for the cat of nine tails, the scent of this Himalayan flower was released into the air with every blow, filling the courtyard with an aroma that made everyone ask themselves, what is that smell? It's the scent of kings. It's the scent of extravagance. It's the scent of opulence being poured out. And what if that scent followed the cross to Golgotha on the Via Dolorosa? And what if, if Jesus hung on the cross dying, every time he pushed himself up for a breath, the perfume came to life again? For any of that to happen, it would have had to have been a very expensive application of a very rich perfume, maybe even a year's wage worth. 
Imagine that as the man of sorrows died on that hill outside Jerusalem, surrounded by Roman soldiers, confused disciples, grieving friends, and self-righteous men whose entire lives were an exercise in missing the point. Imagine that the scent of extravagant opulence hung in the air. It would be just like God to do this. Why? Because the cross is the most extravagant example of opulence ever offered. And because the scent of the opulence of his gift of life still hangs in the air today. Where? In his people. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 2. Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. The gospel is more than a story. It's a present reality. We are the aroma of Christ. The gospel is a lingering scent even still. My Redeemer lives. And he calls us to a new life. Not only to one in the world to come, but even now. And so, may we never forget the extravagance of God and the sacrifice of Christ, that pouring out of that precious perfume. And may we never forget that that lingers then now on his people and we spread the aroma of Christ. And may we never forget what the opulence of God makes us. Pray with me. Lord, thank you for receiving gifts from your people like Mary bringing perfume, this, this, in some ways, rare, luxurious item, and in other ways, a very common thing, um, extract from flowers. And receiving it as a beautiful thing, receiving it as this gift that is a combination of the inherent beauty of creation and the ingenuity of people to turn that creation into a perfume. Lord, thank you for the beauty of the gospel and the reminder that we are the fragrance of grace in the world that you call us to be this. You call us to be people who we are the lingering scent of the opulence of the sacrifice of Christ, the extravagance of it. Lord, thank you that this is true. Help us to be people whose hearts are sensitive to the beauty around us. And we just thank you for your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen.